Our text for today, Mark chapter 7, verse 24 and following, if you'll turn there with me, this is a difficult text because Jesus' answer to the Syrophoenician woman comes across so harsh as to sound like a slap in the face. We're in a series called Miracles. Today's miracle is about desperate women, a demonized little girl, dogs, and dull disciples. All of those. There's a series of withdrawals that Jesus makes in the Gospels, leaving Galilee for other lands during this second year of his ministry, a ministry that we've characterized in recent weeks as the, the special training of the 12. And he goes into these Gentile regions. This time he goes into Tyre and to the region or across the border into Tyre and into the region of Sidon. These were two very prominent cities that were part of a country called Phoenicia. Tyre is about 40 miles from Capernaum, where Jesus and his disciples have been. So this was no small trip on foot. It would have been about a a two and a half to three day journey, and they have to cross the mountains, the western highlands to get there. And Sidon is a, a city about 60 to 65 miles away. And, and what, the, what Mark would have us to know is that this is a distinctively heathen region. It's a territory that is almost entirely all Gentile, Canaanitish beginnings and ancestry. And so why did Jesus need to get so far out of Dodge? If you will. This is the farthest he ever travels outside of Galilee or Judea. And let me suggest there were probably four reasons. It was because there was so much excitement among the people of Galilee why you couldn't stir the crowds with a stick. There was just too, there were just too, there was too many people, too much excitement. Number two, there was too much bitterness and vitriolatry from the Pharisees and the scribes. The religious leaders were increasingly adversarial in their approach. Number three, there was too much suspicion stirring among Herod Antipas, the the king, the ruler of that region who is mentioned back in the end of chapter four and into chapter five. And and then lastly, there's too much dullness, too much distraction uh, on the part of the disciples. Now, I mentioned to you several weeks ago that chapters 6, 7, and 8 are what one commentator calls the bread narratives because, because the bread keeps coming up. It's like a, an underlying theme in these chapters on miracles. And yet every time it comes up, the disciples are, you know, are just too dull to really understand what's going on. And the point that, that I believe Mark is making is that they are in the very presence of the bread of life himself. And all they can think about is the bread on the table and worry about temporal things when they have the answer to everything right there with them 
a relationship with the bread of life himself, and they still don't get it. They're very dull. So we begin the reading in chapter 7, verse 24. He got up and departed. Now, in the, in, in the original uh, Greek version of this, the first word is and. It's interesting how the translations like to try to clean up the Greek a little bit. I wish they'd just leave it alone and just leave the and in there because 84 times in Mark's gospel, 84 times in 16 chapters, Mark begins a paragraph with and because when you read Mark, it's just like one thing happens after another. It's kind of a, it's almost kind of a little bit rough and kind of a crude form of Greek because every paragraph is just be, and, and, and. It's, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a, a little kid you know, uh, running back to his parents at Six Flags, you know, and we rode the roller coaster and then we ate a hot dog and then we got over in cotton candy and then we went over and we, and we, and we threw baseballs, you know, over, over in the midway. And then after that, it was just like, and, and, and. And so this is another one of those where Mark says, and he got up and he departed from there. Where was there? Capernaum. He's going to go 40 miles to what was the border or the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay. And he entered a house. This is interesting to me. Let me tell you why. What has happened in verses 1 through 23? of chapter 7. I mean, Jesus has been embroiled in this major conflict with the religious leaders over how you define what is clean and what is unclean, okay? And then very intentionally, right after that conversation, he takes the 12 and he says, guys, come on, we're going to an incredibly distinctively Hebrew, heathen part of the world. We're going to go to Gentileville, if you will. And he even, you know, he even enters into a house. You see, if you were a good Jew, you would have ceremonially defiled yourself for a long period of time to have done, not only enter into the region, but now he enters into a house, a Gentile's house. He's challenging everything these disciples think about what's clean and what's unclean. And it says he did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Why? Why would he, did he not want someone to know it because he'd, he'd walked into a Gentile's house? Or was it the reality he was laying low? He wanted off the radar. You know, in a sense, he had, for all the reasons we previously had mentioned, he needed to rest. He needed to be away. He needed downtime. He he was looking to get off the radar for a while. So he didn't want anyone to know it. But he could not escape notice. And so now we're introduced to a desperate woman. Instead, verse 25. This is another chi, by the way, another and, but in this sense, it's in what's called the uh, adversive sense of the term. So it's translated as but or instead. But in, instead, chi, instead, immediately, and this is another key word in Mark's gospel, 41 times the action is immediate. 
And immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Unclean spirit. Now, uh, the Greek, you may understand, you may recognize the root there. It's the word akatharoi. Katharoi. We get the word catharsis from it. If someone has a catharsis, what happens? It's a cleansing experience. Something that is cathartic is cleansing. You know, if you put an ah before it, you just negate it. You know, a theist is someone who believes in God. An ah theist, you know, with the with the ah in front, is it means they don't believe. And this is what he's saying: is there was an unclean spirit, an ah catharoi spirit, and, and and so she came and she. What did she do? Scripture says she fell at his feet. She prostrated herself before Jesus. An act of submission and worship. This is a a Gentile, right? And, And so Mark tells us now the woman was Greek. A Syrophoenician by birth. And so Mark has told us quite a bit about this person. What what do we already know about this person? Okay. Number one, she was a woman. Now that sounds redundant, right? She was a woman. And that was a huge societal barrier back in the day in which Jesus lived. Women weren't even second-class citizens. Why, you women didn't even get the vote until when? The 1920s. You've come a long way, baby. But if you look around the Mideast today, are there women who are still living without rights in, in society, in religion and in society? Now, trust me, You know, when that centennial for women's suffrage rolls around in just a few years, there's going to be a big celebration. We're going to mark that in America, especially if Hillary's the president. Okay. I'll get off that one real quick. Somehow, you see, this woman broke through the barricade. She was a woman. She broke through the barricade. And she's now in a room full of men. Jesus and the 12 Jewish men. Mark says she's a mother. And that explains a lot of how she got in there. Ever watched a mother whose child was in danger? whose child's life was threatened. Now now you understand how she broke down the barrier. She wasn't just a woman. She was a mother. And third, she had a daughter who was under attack. A daughter who was being bullied by an unclean spirit. And now verse 26, Mark tells us she was Greek. The you know, the original word there is Helenai. She was a Hellenistic person. She 
you know, she was, she had been Hellenized by the Greco-Roman religion and culture. And she had, because of her Canaanitish roots, which were, which were, you know, polytheistic. It was not hard for, you know, for groups like Phoenicians to adopt the Greco-Roman gods with the, the multitude of gods that there were. So she'd been Hellenized. She, religiously, she was, she was a, a Greek. And, and then he says she was Syrophoenician. She was both Syrian and Phoenician. Does that mean that she was a crossbreed? It, it probably more likely means that she spoke Syrian as a language and she was born in the region known as Phoenicia. There's one last thing that Mark tells us about this person. She's desperate. She's desperate. So let's talk about the dogs. What is the significance of Jesus' reference to dogs here? And he said to her, verse 27, Allow the children to be satisfied first. Because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. The word in the original language for dog is the word kainar. It translates literally mangy cur. To really have a sense of what dogs would have been like in biblical times, you really would have to go with me to Chiapas or someplace like Chiapas, where all the dogs all look like they all had the same parents. They all look like Heinz 57 kind of breeds. And if you walk around, they are, you know, most of them are not treated like house pets. There are some, yes, but for the majority of them, they just roam the streets and they are scavengers. And most of them have skin diseases. Have you been there? Have you seen that? Okay, now you understand what, what dogs look like, what they were like, how they were, and how they were Mostly treated in biblical times. The word kenar means mangy cur, mangy scavenger, mongrel. Mix, if you will. But here's the deal. Jesus, when you read this in the original language, softens this a bit. This is what he says. Allow the, little, allow the little children to be satisfied first because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to, and he uses the diminutive form, canarius, canarius. He uses the, the diminutive form for little puppy. Is it right to take the children's bread and, and, and to feed it to the puppies? Now, let me just, can, can you visualize this? Okay, all right. When my grandkids are at my house and when they're eating out of the high chair, do you know where my dog Bailey stays? When there are children in the house? If there were children in the house and there's a puppy, okay. And, and do you know that we have to keep the hairy eyeball on Hudson and Ryan at all times? Because when you're not looking, they are sliding the food over the edge of the 
you know, the little tray there with its, with its, you know, and trust me, I really believe with all my heart this was an enacted parable for this woman. Jesus is in a house. There are dogs running around. There's probably even puppies running around. And you know what I see Jesus do? In front of his disciples, is it right to take the bread that's meant for the children? And I just see him sliding a chunk of it off the edge of the table. Which, by the way, would have been a low table. It wouldn't have been very far. And boom, it hits the floor. And the puppies are on it just like that. And what Jesus has just done, he has taken what he knows is a racial slur. Dogs is what you called Gentiles, unclean people. That was, the, that was sort of the, you know, the, the euphemistic term that we used in Judaism to refer to someone that's a Gentile. She knew it, and the disciples all knew it. And so Jesus locks eyes on her, but then I think he looks at every one of those disciples and says, is it right to take the bread that's meant for the children and to push it off the table so it falls on the floor for dogs? For puppies. And she picks up on it right away. And she replied to him, Lord. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Okay. Don't go any further. Okay. Mark is the earliest of the Gospels. And it preserves for us most accurately accurately, the titles that were used in Jesus' exchanges with people and also in his exchanges with the disciples. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus almost every time he, he talks about himself, he calls himself what? The Son of Man. It's a loaded messianic term, yes, but it's sort of a, a you know what I'm saying, it's sort of a, a shielded kind of a, um, of a term. He calls himself the Son of Man. And what did the disciples call Jesus? Rabboni, rabbi teacher, almost always. As a matter of fact, the very first person in the Gospel of Mark to ever call Outside of Jesus mentioning it about himself on several occasions. You remember one time Jesus says, the son of man is Lord over the Sabbath. So Jesus uses it three times in Mark's gospel. But the the first person in Mark's gospel to call him Lord was who? A Gentile woman. A desperate Gentile woman. Lord, she says. Even the puppies, and she uses the same diminutive for for dogs, even the puppies under the table eat the children's crumbs. Hmm. She humbles herself. The first time she does it, she prostrates herself before him. She bows to him. And now, responding to what many would interpret as harsh words, she responds in such a way as to say to him, Lord, I don't deserve a place at the table with the children. But I will gladly eat the crumbs that fall from your table. 
Do you see the humility in that? You have humility. You have submission. You have pers- you know, persistence. You know, she's, she's, so, she's so committed. You see that when she, she, she comes into that room, she literally begs Jesus again and again and again is the force of the, of the, of the verb, the, 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 uh, the imperfect tense verb. She begs him over and over again. She's relentless, persistent, uh, and, and she, she pushes her way into his presence. And, 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 she, and when she finds his presence, she humbles herself there and she, she kneels before him and she submits to him and she calls him Lord and Master. And all of that equals what? Faith. Faith. You know, there's only one remote healing in, the, in, in, in Mark's gospel. There's only one time that, that a miracle is performed that does not, act, does not require Jesus' actual presence, his words, or his touch. And that's this one right here. But perhaps more significantly, in all four of the Gospels, there are two people, there are only two people that are called out and commended for their great faith. She's one of them. In Matthew's version of this same story, Jesus answered to her, O woman. Matthew 15, 26, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. One of only two in all of the four Gospels that Jesus commends for their faith, who is the other one? The centurion in Luke chapter 7. Interestingly enough, men's Bible study this last Friday morning, that's where we were in that very text. I was chomping at the bit the whole time. There's so many similarities in that story. Both Gentiles... One's a centurion man, captain of a hundred, but he's desperate. He has a servant, a slave that he dearly loves that's on his deathbed. I'm saying, and so, and so he, he, he does not approach Jesus himself. He approaches the religious leadership and asks them to ask Jesus if Jesus would, would come, you know what I'm saying, and, and heal his slave, his, his servant. So he's, he's Gentile. And when Jesus agrees to come, this Gentile says to Jesus, Lord, I'm not worthy for you even to enter into my house. He humbles himself. He submits himself to Jesus. He says, I too am a man under authority. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I understand authority, Jesus. I, I recognize you are under authority. And, and all of the authority that I have is a Roman centurion that's given to me. You know what I'm saying? I, I can order guys around, but I have nothing, nothing with which to fight the, the battle that I'm involved in with my servant. He's on his deathbed. There's, I have no power, but I understand authority. If you speak, Jesus, if you just speak the message, he he will be healed because I understand authority and I'm not worthy for you to be in my house. There's a similarity. There's submission. There's, you know, there's humility. 
and faith. And Jesus says at the end of Luke 7, when he heard this man say this, he turned to the whole crowd and he said, I tell you, I have not found so great faith even in Israel. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found that the slave was in good or in perfect health. Two. Only two commended for their faith. Okay, so now we need to end up, we need to talk for a minute about the dull disciples, okay? I mean, I'm wondering, after reading through Mark several times, if these guys are ever going to get it, okay? And you know what, by the way, I'm wondering if some of us are ever going to get it. You know, there are three great lessons for us here. And we didn't mention them quickly, okay? There are three great lessons for us. If we're disciples and we're following Jesus and we just saw what just transpired between Jesus and this woman, then I think there are three lessons. If we were to let this soak in a little bit and think about what just happened, you know, there's three lessons for us. Number one, there's a lesson in interpersonal relationships. Number two, there's a lesson about intercessory prayer. And number three, there's a lesson about intimacy in our relationship with Jesus. Okay, first of all, lesson in interpersonal relationships. My favorite quote from Mother Teresa is this one. She was once asked what she saw as the greatest problem in the world today. And her response was clear. The greatest problem in the world today, she said, is that we draw the circle of our family too small. We've just come from this discussion with religious leadership in Judaism about what's clean and what's unclean. Jesus immediately goes where? Jesus just immediately pushed these guys' borders off the page. Guys, we're going to travel for about three days so you guys can get a sense of what God calls to himself and what God cleans. You see, we, in Jewish life, there, was only two, there were only two classes of people. There were, there were really only two people, two kinds of people. There were Jews, the children of God, and there were Gentiles, they were unclean people, they were, you know, rejected people, bad people. So there were only two. And, and for us, it's us and them. Here's us, and there's them. And, and, and the them is anybody who is, you know, not on, you know, like living the lifestyle that we approve of or you know has a moral conviction that shares our moral convictions or or um well, think about it who's the, who's the them to you see, see where do you draw the circle what did jesus just do how jesus did far did jesus take that circle See, see, the point of this story is, one of the key points of this story is that we need to move from us and them to us and him. Big difference. 
that same border, that same border that Jesus crossed. Did you know what? For the last two weeks, every day, missiles have been fired back and forth across that same border. Because we draw the circle of our family too small. Mother Teresa was right. Secondly, there's a lesson on intercessory prayer here for us. Think about this woman does not come on her behalf, does she? No. She comes on behalf of another that she dearly cares about. And what she's involved in is a prayer of intercession, you know. And uh, I get that. That's what my week, my entire week has been about. I mean, I got off the airplane, you know, on Saturday night, you know, I'm saying at 930 from vacation. And there was a there was a note, you know, there was a there was a text from Chad. Please call me ASAP when you get off the airplane. And all week long, you know, all week long, I've been involved in, I mean, in multiple situations, you know, just like. You know, but they're all about, but they're all about situations I have no control over. So what do I do? I've been on my knees all week, man, praying about people I care about that I love and I care about, you know, that just praying that God, you know, God will invade their space, you know, and God will do a work of grace and, and, you know, in such a cool way, you know, I'm saying that, that, you know, that, that lives get, you know, are impacted and changed and for good. You know, my best friend's daughter-in-law, 31 years of age, has an aggressive brain tumor. The, the future is so uncertain. Deb spent hours this week, spent all day Monday, at, you know, at, 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 at the hospital with, a, with her hairdresser, a gal that she's shared Christ with again and again and again over the years. We just, we love on her. She's become a sweet friend, you know, um, but she has she has liver cancer and it's and it's spreading to other places, you know, in her body and 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 then there's just the the personal stuff coming up, you know, a family with a you know with a teen in crisis and you know and marriage is struggling. I mean, just man, all week this has been about intercessory prayer, and that's what this woman's about, and she persevered. She humbled herself. She, she wrestled her way, you know, through whatever barricade was there to get into the presence of God. And then she threw herself down in worship and submission. And she just humbled herself and she poured out her heart to him. And she wouldn't quit doing it. She just persevered. And then even when it seemed like God was, you know, not listening in Matthew's gospel, you know, when Matthew tells the story of the same event, Matthew says Jesus initially didn't speak to her. Was silent. Ever gotten God's silence? But you stayed at prayer anyway. You persevered through it. So it has a lot to say about intercessory prayer. And, and then there's one last thing. It says something about, about our intimacy in relationship with Jesus. Jesus could simply have granted this woman's request and then just get her out of the room. After all, I'm down here to rest. But he gives her the silent treatment. He says something that to her probably felt like a slap in the face. He... He challenged her 
in her faith. He caused her to struggle. She, she, she maybe even for, for a moment felt small and, 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 and rejected, even put down. But she had only one thing in mind when she came into that room. And Jesus had so much more in mind for her. Do you see it? He wanted her to walk away the way she walked away with great, deep faith and trust. And he knew there was no way to get there. But by the way, he conducted business with her life. She walked away in deep faith. She, she fell at his feet. She prostrated herself initially because she had no place else to go. But trust me, trust me. Now, now she knows him and she knows what he can do. And she'll be back on her face, on her knees before him again and again, again, confessing him as Lord, because she now has faith. She now has a relationship. She doesn't just have a temporary alleviation of her child's problem. She got much more than she bargained for. And that's why. Because he wants us to rest and learn how to rest in him. That's where it all started out. Jesus was seeking a quiet, private, away kind of place so that he could rest, so that he could be in intimacy with the Father. And that's where he calls us. Let's pray.